Velasquez Digital Media Communications help the long dance come to life. Whether you need consulting or audio production services, Velasquez Media has the right tools for podcast creators. Find us on the web at velasquezmedia.com. That's V-E-L-A-S-Q-U-E-Z media.com. Mysteries like the long dance can be a lot of fun, but not everything needs to be a mystery, like finding the right home. I'm Lana Pierce, a realtor with Keller Williams. Whether you're local or not, contact me at Durham NC Realty or lanapierce at kw.com. Let me investigate the right options for you. Lana Pierce Realtor, homes are my hustle. Lead the detective work to the professionals. Hi, this is Eric. And Steve from the Writer Types Podcast. If you dig the long dance as much as we do, check out our conversations with crime, mystery, and thriller authors like Sarah Paretsky, Blake Crouch, and Gillian Flynn. We even interviewed Eric Pruitt. Find Writer Types wherever you get your favorite podcasts. You're listening to The Long Dance, an eight-part true crime podcast hosted by investigative reporter Drew Adamek and crime fiction author Eric Pruitt. This is episode three, The Tangle of Jurisdiction. If you haven't listened to episodes one and two, we encourage you to stop here and go back so you can catch up to speed. If you have yet to subscribe, please do so. We're on iTunes, Stitcher, and wherever you find great podcasts. Be sure to check out our website, thelongdancepodcast.com. Most of all, thank you for listening. At approximately 1 o'clock on February 25, 1971, on a long, unpaved drive cutting through a deep thicket of Carolina pine, Robert Kirby, a land surveyor for the federal government, parked his truck in a dead-end turnaround. It was an overcast winter's afternoon. The skies were gray, the leaves sticky and damp. It was 40 degrees, cold for North Carolina. Kirby had been dispatched from nearby Hillsboro to locate a property marker separating land owned by the Sands family from a close relative of theirs, the Zeners. The Sands lived in a house at the top of the hill, but that was a good distance away. Kirby could do his work in privacy. The family's called the Little Drive Sanzine Road, and again, it was unimproved. Tall weeds lined both sides of it, as did a long ditch. Kirby had to scurry up a slight, slippery slope before he'd find himself in the thicket, where he'd poke through the leaves to find that property marker. He'd done so for a good ten minutes or longer, before he came across what looked to be an exposed left thigh, a woman's leg. In his years of surveyor's work, he'd become accustomed to finding many things in the woods, including mannequins. Thinking a little more of it, he climbed back into his truck and was halfway up the drive before he realized he'd never seen anyone cover a mannequin with leaves. He backed the truck to the bottom of the little road, then got out for further exploration. This time, when he saw the leg he noticed a left hand, also submerged in wet foliage, the hand darker than the leg. Then, on the opposite side of a tree, a right hand, a man's hand. But what most caught his attention was the shiny Pittsburgh High School ring. He raced to his truck to fetch a surveyor's stick, then returned to the bodies. He poked the leg with it, and when the skin gave way against the stick, he knew for sure they were human. He immediately returned to the truck, drove as fast as he could up to the wooded drive to the Carolina trailer court at the top of the hill where he pounded at the door of the first trailer home he came to. Pale and out of breath, 
He demanded the woman who answered to call the Orange County Sheriff. He told her to tell them that he had found the missing nursing school student and her boyfriend, the one that half of North Carolina had been looking for. Forty-six years later, Sanzine Road is largely forgotten. The entrance has been blocked and the road has gone unmaintained. Trees have fallen into it and lay like matchsticks across the path. The dead-end turnaround at the bottom of the hill has fallen to overgrowth. You could stand on that very spot and never know a thing about what horrors had taken place there. This is not lost on Captain Tim Horn of the Orange County Sheriff's Office, the detective who, back in 2010, dared take on this 46-year-old mystery of who left Pat Mann and Jesse McBain tied to that tree that Robert Kirby stumbled upon, can't help but remark on these unhallowed grounds. To visit that long-ago crime scene, now just a nondescript clump of trees and a nondescript stretch of state forest, to stand in the place where those two young people died before barely starting their lives, is to visit the set of a horror film. Theirs were lonely, terrifying deaths, and even standing in the spot on a bright summer day decades later, a sense of dread hangs in the air. To imagine what it must have been like for Pat and Jesse, how lonely, how unfair, how cruel, how sadistic their deaths were. To feel in the distant noise of the highway how their killer must have enjoyed the luxury of time the seclusion gave him is to remember that we're not just talking about characters in a story. At the very heart of what we're doing, the very reason that we're searching for the exact tree at which their lives ended is the tragedy of two young people out enjoying a bit of innocent fun, dying at the hands of an unknown killer at the end of a lonely road on a cold, rainy night. These thoughts and more haunt Captain Horn. I went up and, and visited Gettysburg. I don't know if you've ever been to Gettysburg, but there's, of course, all the horrible, you know, battles and... Uh, you know, little round top and, you know, pickets charged and, and, and all the horrible stuff that went on and the mass loss of life. When you drive to Gettysburg now, it's a peaceful place. You know, you know the past of what happened, but it's nice rolling fields and, and wooded and it's hard to envision that something so tragic happened there. It's the same thing here. It's hard to envision that something that horrible and tragic happened here because it seems so peaceful. It almost feels like a place now you can come and sit and meditate. Yeah. Yeah, just to get away from it all. And and I know it sounds crazy using Gettysburg as some kind of analogy, but but it's a beautiful place. Horrible things happen there, but it's a beautiful place, and you don't see all the horrible stuff now. You know, you, the bodies have been removed. You know, the forests have grown back. Uh, you know, the artillery's all been moved. It's just a uh, a, a wooded, wooded area, and then you know, high ground, low ground fields, and, and it just seems somber. And you know what happened there, and so it's it's a powerful feeling that you get when you go there. But it, it seems everything's at peace now, just like here. Very peaceful here. You're right. There's still ghosts. Huh? Yeah. Still feels like there's still ghosts, just like in Gettysburg. There's still ghosts. You get that that weird feeling the sense when you're here. It's a horror story and uh, you can only imagine or try to imagine what was going through their mind. Are they going to leave us here? Is Patricia going to be raped? 
Are they just going to rob us? You know, at what point things have clearly gone bad. You know, they were abducted. It's not looking good. But at what point did they realize this is it? Because you have maniacs that rape and rob and do all, all these horrible crimes and, and let the victims live. You know, you don't know what the suspect's saying to them. You know, are they crying out to each other? Is this guy just not saying anything? Or is he giving them orders? Is he telling them what he's going to do to them to, to you know, terrorize them even more? You know, would, would they would then know what's coming? I, who knows? Who knows? It's hard to say, but... I mean, they were kidnapped for a reason. They were kidnapped for a reason. I mean I, I mean, I know what I was told the reason. What were you told? I mean, I don't know if I can say it. We're also there with Joe Sands. He's grown up with the specter of the murders of Patricia Mann and Jesse McBain in his backyard. Literally. He lived at the top of his hill his entire life and was 12 years old when it happened. Like the rest of Durham, he's heard the rumors. A doctor did it. But owning the property adjacent to the crime scene isn't his only inside information to the case. His mother also worked at Watts when Patricia went missing. My mother told me, I think she was a nurse at the hospital at Watts. Mm-hmm. And was. He was her fiance. And he went was. to NC State. Okay. My mother told me was that this, the nurse, which was Patricia, mm-hmm. caught somebody at the hospital stealing drugs out of the cabinet and threatened to tell on him. Next thing you know, they're murdered. Right. And I mean, that... this is the conversation I had with my mother. I said, right. Mama, if you know, you need to tell somebody. Yeah. And she took it to her grave. <laughs> Why do you think she wanted to keep it secret? I have no idea. It don't make no damn sense to me. She worked at Watts for 28 years. She worked in the, she wasn't a nurse, she worked in the accounting department where you pay, okay? That's where she worked. But she knew of this. But she would never tell. I guess the only thing she'd ever tell me was it was the son of a prominent businessman here in Durham. And that's all she would ever tell me. I said, Mama, you need to... When the SBI came down here, she wouldn't talk to him. I tried to... I mean, I guess she was probably still working at Watts then. Maybe she was scared. Maybe they were scared they were going to come after her if she told on them. This is the most common rumor that has floated over Durham and Orange County since Pat and Jesse first went missing back around Valentine's Day 1971. Patricia walked in on someone stealing drugs. In some versions of the story, she turned him into Watts authorities and he sought retaliation. In other versions, he killed her to keep her from talking. An unusual number of people can associate one doctor's name to that rumor, but we'll focus on that in an upcoming episode. We promise. Captain Horn has heard these rumors. He's heard them all. He's run down each and every one of them. He adds them to the mental database he's compiled in his head about the Man McBain homicide. Also in that database, all the notes, affidavits, and testimonials from 46 years of investigations that he found in a dusty old box in a jailhouse attic. Crime scene photographs. What evidence they've been able to preserve after a half century. And most importantly the investigative skills he's acquired from 20-plus years of experience as a homicide detective. He uses all of this and more to paint a picture of what happened that terrible morning. Everybody's got their own opinion, but having done a, a ton of crime scenes, 
and the classes I've attended and just seen the photographs and talking with the investigators, it looks to me like they were tortured. That's what I call it, tortured. I mean, they were tied individually and then kind of lashed one to the other around the tree and the evidence suggests they were strangled and to the point of, and you gotta remember, when you're trying to catch your breath, get air in a situation like that, you're gonna to go towards the resistance, if that makes sense, to lessen the, the tension to be able to get your breath. And so there was a trough that was kind of hollowed out under their feet and there was mud on their shoes. And so to me, it appeared that they were struggling, kish, kicking, thrashing about, probably trying to stretch up as high as they could to lessen the tension to get to get a breath. Being, and, being against the tree for so long. Yeah, and so th that was torturous to me, as I think about it. it. You know, it's tragic when somebody gets shot, but clearly the suffering ends fairly quickly. In a situation like this, I mean, it went on. And, and the trough and the photographs and to look at the shoes, it, it appeared to me that the suspect probably allowed them to regain consciousness only to do it again. They were taking great pleasure, so it's very sadistic. That particular night, they said it was a cold February. It was uh, misty, drizzling rain and cool. I don't have the exact temperature, but typical February day, just drizzling rain, overcast. It must have been, you know, a chaotic scene. If you pull two people out of a trunk, drag them 30 feet or make them drag themselves 30 feet, tie to a tree in a cold, rainy night, I mean, it seems kind of complicated, doesn't it? Like a complicated crime to commit? I've seen everything, and so uh, I, anything's possible. But certainly, you know, as, as I've seen the scene and the photographs and, and you go through the case file, you try to imagine it as it was. You know, as we walk down, you know, I'm envisioning these poor kids, whether they were in the trunk of the car or, you know, tied in the back seat, however that happened. You know, they're, they're turning down a road. They don't know where in the world they're at. They're scared and it's raining, the confusion and the fear they must have felt, and then the suspect, you know, if you've got two people, let's just say it was one suspect, and we've already established how that, that, that could have occurred. All right, he's got one, one victim that's fairly incapacitated with her injuries already, and so she's gonna have to be assisted, helped, forced to drag herself, but she's not gonna have a lot of fight in her at that point. But you still got to get two individuals and lash them and bind them to this tree. And so did they kind of go around the cul-de-sac with the, with the car and, and, you know, face the headlights so they had some kind of lighting? You know, it was clearly dark. Uh, did they, you know, haphazardly stumble through and up the ditch here? And the first tree they came to a sufficient size, they just picked that tree. You know, I can't imagine trying to control two people, have a weapon, probably a gun, force them to do this. There's just too many moving parts and then have a flashlight. So my assumption would be they probably use the headlights of the car. No one's gonna see it back here. Anything's possible, but you know, it's just hard, it's hard to say. But you think these things as you walk back here and you look at the photographs and it's weird to talk to the victims' families, the investigators, 
the witnesses, the people at the dance, talk to these people, and then see the case file and the photographs, and then actually come out to the scene all these years later. I mean, it hits home when you're out here. You know, so much more than just that black and white photograph. Just so we're clear, whose jurisdiction is this? We're standing in Orange County. And so back in 1971, this would have been the Orange County Sheriff's Office. That's very important to note, by the way. Just up the hill and about 100 yards to the east sits the Durham-Orange County line. When Robert Kirby, the land surveyor from Hillsborough, demanded the woman call the authorities, this set in motion the beginning of a long, tortured discussion about responsibility, accountability, and the tangle of jurisdiction. That conversation continues 46 years later. If you'll remember, in the last episode, our visit with Cornelia Olive, former journalist and ex-wife of Durham Detective Tim Bowers, told us the following. But I don't think anybody's willing to give it up. And Tim and Dick weren't. They were not cooperative with Orange County. And I won't say I'm quoting them verbatim, but I think that there were times that they were, they were saying, we don't tell them anything, they ain't telling us nothing. And, you know, monkey see, monkey do. Do you think this case would have gotten solved had they shared information at the right time? I think it would have come a hell of a lot closer than it did. I just think the absence of technology in any situation is a a serious mistake. This is not a game. This is a life-and-death situation, and who gets the credit is immaterial. When you've you've got a killer who's walking around possibly thinking about his next victims. She's talking about detectives Dick Morris and Tim Bowers, two Durham police investigators who caught the missing persons case resulting from the disappearance of Patricia Mann and Jesse McBain. For two weeks back in 1971, they ran down every lead in the hopes of finding some trace of the missing couple, when suddenly they received word that two bodies had been found in Orange County. Cornelia also said, I guess there was fault on everybody's side, but... From my experience being, I guess, a peripheral character in this, I just found the Orange County people to be so uncooperative and, and so possessive of, of information. I know that, that when I talked to, to them and somebody slipped and told me something, and then I'd say something about it to Dick or Tim, and they didn't know about it. And I met, what was his name who was with the SBI? Fred Cahoon. Um, Fred didn't know squat, and he really did. He was, how, why they both, both agencies kept him out of the loop as much as they did when he could have been the glue that pulled everything together. Enter Fred Cahoon. Hello? Hello, I'm looking for Fred Cahoon. Oh, this is right. Hello, Mr. Cahoon. My name is Eric Pruitt, and I am a writer out of Durham, North Carolina. How are you doing? All right. This may come as a as a shot out of the out of the blue, but uh, I'm working with a partner on a on a murder case that we have seen that you were involved with uh, in the 70s, in the 1970s, and we were wondering if there's any way we could talk to you about that case. It's uh, specifically it's the Patricia Man, Jesse McBain murder, uh, double murder. I think they called it the Valentine's Day murders. For us. Fred Cahoon represented quite defined. Until he answered the phone that afternoon, 
We had yet to speak to a single original investigator that had worked on the murders of Pat and Jesse. It took some doing, but we convinced the retired SBI agent to meet us in New Bern for lunch. Well, not a retired SBI agent per se. I'm retired and former SBI, so I guess that would be the proper way to do it. I was in the SBI about seven and a half years, and I've been here, I've been retired 10 years, and put in 30 here, the hospital here, and administration, retired as vice president. But at the time of the murders, Fred Cahoon had served as a general field agent for North Carolina's State Bureau of Investigation for two years. Created in 1925 by the North Carolina General Assembly, the SBI enjoys statewide jurisdiction, and its primary role is to assist local law enforcement with criminal investigations. While researching this case, we found time to be one of the unfortunate realities. Many of the primary detectives have deceased, particularly Orange County Sheriff's Deputy Bobby McCullough. He was one of the first two men on the scene after the bodies were discovered. Although he isn't here, he leaves behind a wealth of notes in the case file, all of which fuel the information gleaned from those first crucial moments of the investigation. Those surviving, on the other hand, have lost many of the details over the past 46 years. But when it comes to that cold, fateful February afternoon, Fred Cahoon's memory is crystal clear. I had been working uh, that day earlier with uh, one of the Orange County deputies on a totally unrelated case. And we were sitting at the counter, had just ordered lunch at about 2 o'clock in the afternoon, somewhere along in there. And the plates were just being set in front of us when uh, the deputy got a call on the radio that uh, a surveyor had thought what he had discovered what he thought might be a dead body or a dismembered body. So we jumped, of course, and left the lunch on the table, and that was, we met him. And he took us to the, well, we met him right there at the area, took to the end of the spur road that they were found on. He said, right over there, and of course looked over there, he said, I didn't know if it was a mannequin leg, I don't know if it was a dismembered human leg, whatever. And from the end of the road, we could see that there was a, a leg, and we weren't positive at that point. Uh, we were probably 40 yards from it and couldn't tell because there was a pile of leaves around the tree. And so as we approached, we could see that there was a human leg and then got a little closer and saw that it was actually two bodies that were tied to the tree and pushed over and then covered with leaves. And I guess weather, wind, dogs, whatever had uncovered the, uh, the one leg of Pat Man. That's when it all started. Of course, I radioed Raleigh office and our district office in Cary, told the district supervisor what we had, and he sent everybody he could find. And of course, so did the sheriff's department and a number of agencies that were involved. Among those agencies were Durham police. Detectives Morris and Bowers arrived immediately. They were no longer working on missing persons. It was now a homicide, double homicide. 
As a member of an investigative agency covering many jurisdictions, Cahoon warned of tensions between departments. While he insists it was hardly the norm, he acknowledged that there may have been times when communication was challenging. In general, it was excellent. There were maybe a couple or three isolated instances of, say, having to walk a fine line because they, they didn't want you infringing on their territory. And I think Durham PD was one of those. They say they with the broad brush. It's uh, primarily one as chief of detectives, and Tim Bowers was an assistant to him. And so Tim had to follow his lead. I think Tim was more on the up and up, but the other guy, uh, he didn't want to share information. He was wanted to grab glory if there were any to be had. That, that was the impression I got. And because uh, Tim acted, uh, acted as if he wanted to share things, but he was constrained. And you could tell by his demeanor that he he knew more and wanted to tell more, but he'd be in trouble with his boss if he did. Immediately, this strained relationship was put to the test. We wanted to get in touch with the, with the families and um, with uh, friends and associates of both. And we interviewed some of the nurses, and that was done in a large group of nurses, classmates of hers. Uh, with Durham Police Department detectives taking the lead in that, which was not an ideal circumstance to be gathering information. Because they were publicly distraught. You would like to, well, that, plus uh, you very rarely get a lot of specific information in a case like that when you interview a lot of people in a room together. You might set the stage for it, but then you would normally go in and talk to them individually and especially asking which we did if uh, anybody had any information please come forward and to my knowledge none of them ever did there should have been better follow-up on an individual basis i think why was the decision made to interview them in a group that was made by dick morris he and tim bowers led that scene they had already had it set up when, uh, when we had knowledge of it. Cahoon and McCullough felt they gleaned little from this group interview, but they did catch one early nugget. Pat Mann had a pen pal. She and an American soldier stationed in Vietnam had traded letters, and now that his tours had ended, he had asked to meet her. Twice he had offered to drive from his rural Louisiana hometown, but over the Christmas holidays, she had refused. She said it didn't feel right. Could this slight have driven the Vietnam veteran over the edge? Could these letters be the missing piece of the puzzle? In the meantime, other suspects came to light. Lonnie Byron Ashley had been heard crowing across Durham and Orange counties that he'd killed so many in Vietnam, it wouldn't be any matter for him to kill a couple more. Known to be a heavy amphetamine user, a speed freak, he was quite peaceful when approached by Deputy McCullough, hands held high, saying, I did it. I did it. You caught me. McCullough loaded him into his cruiser and was halfway to the Orange County Sheriff when finally he asked, What'd you do, Lonnie? Well, I'm AWOL, Ashley told him. Isn't that why you've come to collect me? However, McCullough and the other detectives on the case were left wondering 
What else had he done? Everyone involved admitted that this was a most unusual crime, far from the average run-of-the-mill murder. In fact, there was something ritualistic about it. Tying two people to a tree, no signs of robbery or sexual assault. Something more drove this murderer. Could they be looking at the work of a serial killer? Immediately, they began looking at crimes beyond the triangle in search of something similar. Could some other jurisdiction hold the key? It wasn't long before they stumbled upon William Jr. Pierce. In May of 1970, William Jr. Pierce had been paroled out of the Georgia prison system after serving seven years of a 20-year stretch for burglary, arson, attempted prison break, and several other charges. Despite warnings from the prison psychologist that Pierce's test scores reveal the possibility of sociopathic disorders and that he may be dangerous to himself and others, he was free. And over the next eight months, he killed at least nine people. Among those victims was Hazel Wilcox, a 32-year-old storekeeper who was found tied to a tree in the woods not far from where she'd been abducted, then hanged with a piece of cord so tight her neck had to be disassembled in order to remove the noose. Another of his victims... Margaret Catino was a 13-year-old girl who'd been strangled in the woods, then covered with leaves. A South Carolina journalist quoted Pierce as saying there were probably some officers near Chapel Hill who'd like to talk to him about the deaths of two people who'd been killed and tied to a tree. Without any delay, Orange County Sheriff Buck Knight and SBI's Frank Satterfield headed south to Georgia. They weren't halfway across the state line before Appling County Sheriff Red Carter called him off stating they needed no additional publicity as they readied their case for trial against Mr. Pierce. Knight and Satterfield's request to interview the now infamous serial killer were denied. William Pierce would represent one of the first true trials for the competing law enforcement agencies. Durham Police Captain E.G. Atkins discouraged media cooperation and was quoted in the Durham Herald as saying, If no one says anything about the investigations, the murderers are bound to foul up. His Orange County counterpart, Buck Knight, agreed with him. After the sheriff had been turned away from interviewing the alleged serial killer in Baxley, Georgia, he instituted a complete media blackout. None of his deputies were allowed to comment on the case to the press, and none of them dared defy his orders. Durham Herald reporter Cornelia Olive found this to be troubling, to say the least. Her relationship with Durham detective Tim Bowers tipped her off to the Georgia serial killer. That inside information would come at a cost. So I had written a story about that and interviewed the sheriff down there. And in all the, the clippings I've seen, that story never has, has uh, resurfaced. Uh, I got threatened uh, when I later called the Orange County Sheriff's Office. And they said, you're putting out too much information. And it's appearing that Um, we're not doing our job. And in my nicest, sweet Southern voice said, well, what in the hell is it to you? I'm I'm doing my job just like you're doing your job. He said, well, I just encourage you not to come through Orange County at night. I thought, this is law enforcement threatening me and we're on the same side. I don't, I don't understand this. In retrospect, I may have implied in the way I wrote that there was a suspect who had not been questioned. However, as time passed, it would seem Cornelia was the only one with whom Dick Morris and Tim Bowers were sharing information. Certainly not Sheriff Knight and his Orange County boys. Definitely not Fred Cahoon and the SBI. 
and surprisingly, not even within their own department. Tony Roop was on the job in Durham for 26 years, the last 10 of which he worked in the Crimes Against Persons Squad, a precursor to homicide. That's where you'd find him in 1971, working on the case with Bowers and Morris. Well, not exactly alongside. I caught up with him on the telephone, where he discussed his role in the investigation and the lack of communication within the division. The case was assigned to another detective, but basically what me and the other detectives done was very little on it. It's kind of a strange thing. It's a story in itself, but uh, uh, if they had something to follow up on, we'd go out and run down the lead and give it to the lieutenant that we had at that time, and Tim Bowers, who was the lead investigator on it. But uh, as far as any other detectives been actively involved in the case, uh, there wasn't any. They tended to keep that thing pretty close to the chest. Whatever reasons, nobody ever knew. So, And I personally think that that hindered the investigation for a long time. But there was just something about that case that uh, it become a top-secret operation there, and that screwed it up. I think it could have been cleared early on had everybody known what was going on and if it had been handled in a different manner. And I'm, that's just not my opinion. That's uh, about everybody else's opinion that's familiar with the case. And of course, Tim, he was fairly new in the Bureau at that time, and we initially got that as a missing person case, which was rightfully so at that time. He should have been assigned that case. And then when they were found in an Orange County, of course, it became a, a homicide investigation, and of course, he stayed on it, him and Lieutenant Mars. And there was some friction there, too, I think, between the, the sheriff in Orange County, I, I believe Knight was his name during that time, and Mars, so, you know, it's... Uh, like I say, don't fully understand why, but uh, that's about it. Morris and, and Bowers were keeping this one close to the chest. That was within the department as well, right? Oh, yeah. Well, within the Bureau. Oh, yeah, especially within the department. So normally they would probably be a bit more open with an investigation with their fellow detectives, but on this one they were not. Well, you know, uh, yeah. All the cases that we worked over there, you know, it was worked as a team. It's what we couldn't understand. But I guess they had their reasons. I don't know. Can you speculate at all on what those might be? No, I can't because I don't really really know. Nobody else does. Uh, You know, the only thing I can probably say is that Marsh wanted to clear the big case, you know. The number of mysteries swirling within the nuances of the Mann-McBain murder case is legion. One of the most compelling is why Morris and Bowers refused to share information. Was it because they wanted to solve it themselves? Were they hungry for the glory? Could it have been that they were suspicious of outside interference due to past frictions on other cases? Was this simply a situation brought about by an inexperienced detective or an overzealous supervisor? Here again, I may be wrong, but I think Tim was following orders and so forth from Dick Morris. I think Dick was the primary reason why the information was not shared. And Clarence Gooch had a lot more contact with Dick Morris uh, being stationed in Durham than I did, and he felt the same way. It was not only this case, but many others. Clarence Gooch. This man has had an interesting career. Before he retired to teach criminal justice at a local community college, Gooch served in a half a dozen law enforcement agencies. 
He'd worked for both Henderson and Durham Police Departments before becoming the first African-American SBI agent. Often paired with Fred Cahoon on big cases, the two investigators were known as hotshots. They often got the job done. Still, he could recall many of the frictions existing between the agencies they encountered. He also remembers something else, which ought to get you good and rankled. I recall back in uh, a couple of months before then, Duke had a lowest lane out in Duke Forest. This guy was trying to kidnap the couple that was parked out there. Uh, he jumped out with his gun. I told him to get out of the car. He was going to put the girl in the trunk, and then he asked the guy to get in the trunk, and the guy some kind of way knocked the gun in his hand and knocked hell out of him. Excuse my expression, but uh, that, that happened. The sheriff of Orange County found the gun, and we knew the sheriff had the gun, and it was maybe a year later before I got that gun from the sheriff, and I begged him to, to let me see I get kind of where the gun come from and to get the uh, FBI or someone to raise the, the identification serial numbers on it. And we found out that that gun was purchased in Durham, right behind the Durham Police Department, a gun shop back there. And uh, we went there, and Fred and I went there, and we had some problems, a few problems there. Uh, the guy refused to tell us who he had sold a gun to. And I told him, I said, well, I know where we need to tell us. And we, we reported him to the uh, one of the, uh, the AT uh, guys. They couldn't tell us who bought the gun. We never found out who brought, bought that gun. But this is the type of stuff that the different departments were keeping from each other. The police department had a button where either the guy had probed them with, with, with a knife or some sharp instrument, and apparently there was a hole in the button. Well, we didn't ever find out about that until real late. And we wanted to see the button and stuff like that so it could be photographed, so that if we found an object, that we could maybe been able to compare that. I haven't seen the button yet. Time out. Let's go over that real quick before we continue. That button. As you remember from earlier conversations, Pat and Jesse received post-mortem wounds from their killer, superficial punctures from a sharp weapon with a rounded tip, most likely to make sure that they were dead. One of those piercings went through a button on Pat's blouse, and a piece of metal had been embedded in it. There was quite an argument between investigators back then about access to that button. That button is not in evidence, neither in 1971 nor in 2017. Also, that incident in Duke Forest. A man with a gun ordering a pair of lovers into the trunk of his car? We flip microfiche until our eyes bled, but can turn up nothing on it. And it's not the first time we've heard about it. Carolyn Spivey mentions it. It's talked about in an issue of Official Detective magazine. It's come up repeatedly in the discussion, as well as other attempted lover's lane kidnappings that have happened around this time. Current homicide detectives from the different bureaus have helped us search for more information about these incidents but without concrete names, dates, or addresses, it's like looking for a needle in a haystack. You're forced to imagine that law enforcement at that time would have run this down, and this is why it doesn't figure larger in the case file. But still. And that missing gun. We can find nothing on it. Later in the case file, we can find the name of an old gun dealer, Luke Kesterman, who fits Gooch's description, but we've turned up nothing regarding this missing gun. So why would these pieces of evidence not be shared? To what gain would there be withholding the button or the gun or the pocket knife that Captain Horn found in Tim Bauer's personal file or any other number of clues? 
The only thing we have to go on in 2017 is conjecture from those investigators that actually participated. I guess the sheriff probably didn't like the way we, you know, he, he was from old school. Very powerful sheriff, Sheriff Buck Knight, very powerful, very political. Uh, you know, I, I don't think he liked the way Fred and I did things, but we brought results. So uh, I don't think he wanted the Durham Police Department to solve a crime in his county. They, they, they like uh, police officers and sheriffs and other agencies are like, they, they, they use the same thing as, as, and I use the term, torality. They're very protective of their territory. Okay. Uh, if anything happened in my county, we're going to be in on it. That same thing with Durham Police Department at that time. If anything happened in Durham, we're going to be in on it. Was the Duke Force thing ever solved? It never was solved. It, it never was. But it, 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 the MO, everything was about was the same. I feel that 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 we had gotten all the evidence, put it out on the table. Uh, I believe that we could have uh, used that evidence to to assist us in going further. If we, in 2017, feel the frustrations mounting, just imagine what it must have been like back in 1971. Clarence Gooch only repeats what we've heard time and time again from seasoned investigators. If law enforcement had communicated, if they had only shared evidence, if only, if only, if only. We in present day must be pulling out our hair and demanding someone sit all these different agents down and force them to work together. That's exactly what Clarence Gooch proposed. After five years of chasing leads and running down blind alleys, of hitting dead ends and butting up against bureaucratic roadblocks, in 1976, Gooch approached the one man who held enough clout to force all the agents to lay it all out on the table. The only problem, would it be too late? Anthony Brandon wore himself out serving two terms as Durham County's district attorney. Ask him, and he'll tell you that he loved every minute of it. He would go on to serve as a judge, but he says it's the DA who faces the most pressure. When you're a district attorney, you get to know your caseload simply by reading the morning paper to see who the police had arrested the day before or what big crimes had been committed. You don't really select your caseload. The job of district attorney, if you work at it, and I did, is a very wearisome job. How anybody can do it for as long as some do, turned if I know. Brandon was not introduced to this case in 1976. As a longtime citizen of Durham and a career player in Bull City crime, it would be impossible for him to claim ignorance of this sensational murder case. It was a spectacular crime at the time. Two young, absolutely innocent people, both striving to achieve success. She in the nursing profession, he is a student state, and their lives are so crudely and rudely interrupted and ruined. They had all the earmarks of a spectacular case. Like all spectacular cases, it basically faded from public attention since nobody was arrested. And the details of police investigations are not a matter of public knowledge or concern. I knew of it because 
I was involved to some extent in the investigation. The Orange County Sheriff never asked anybody about anything and didn't tell anybody about anything that I could tell. And the Durham detective, it was basically his first case as a detective. So I did what I could, which wasn't much. And uh, it ended up as a cold case and has remained to this day as a cold case, even though there's always been one suspect and I believe he had a partner in crime, or should we say a partner, who was far cry from a doctor. Brennan's position allowed him inside information in most matters of law enforcement. He claims not to get involved unless asked, but our impression of him, even decades into retirement, is that he is not the kind of man who takes rejection easy. Still, his name pops up throughout the file, as does his assistant at the time, Nicholas Smith. More on this later, but Brandon's insider status does give him a first-hand look at the issues at play between Orange County and Durham Police. Trying to get two detective bureaus involved together is never an easy thing. One of the things you learned, law enforcement work, investigative work, police work, is how difficult it can be to get two agencies to work together. It could be a matter of policy, or it could be a matter of personalities. In this case, I think it was probably personalities. The Orange County detective is very tight-lipped towards everybody. <laughs> I don't think he ever told the Durham counterpart, Tim Bowers, much of anything. And Tim Bowers didn't learn much of anything, so he was really the sidecar in the matter. And uh, the general public has no idea of how informal, if you will, law enforcement interpersonal relations actually are. In the newspaper profession, one newspaper man often doesn't tell another much of anything, usually because they're all interested in the same story, but want to be the one to publicize it. So similar forces are at work in law enforcement. But one Saturday afternoon in 1976, five years after the murders, Brandon would finally bring all of the original detectives together. Urged by SBI agent Clarence Gooch, he gathered them all together, and in the first attempt to establish a record for future investigators, he had the meeting transcribed. I've read this transcript over a dozen times. It's 75 pages long and reads like a novel. You cannot put it down. You can feel the friction between investigators. You sense the frustration. There are moments in there of true surprise in which the investigators steeped and mired in this case receive a piece of information they've never before had, and you can taste their agony. Without hyperbole, it is one of the most engrossing reads of my entire life. This transcript reveals to us how several strong suspects were eventually ruled out. For instance, remember William Jr. Pierce, the Florida serial killer? He left a wake of victims, and his path would have taken him through Durham. The timing was right on the money, and two of his victims were found tied to a tree. A waiter in Sanford swore he served him biscuits the morning of February 13th. Junior seemed a likely candidate. If only Sheriff Buck Knight could get a crack at him. But he didn't do it. The FBI profiler said Pat and Jesse's killer would possess above-average intelligence. Junior Pierce's IQ was quoted to barely break 70. Furthermore, Pierce raped his victims. There was no sign of sexual assault in the man McBain homicides. But the wrecking ball came when Pierce produced an alibi. 
He'd always claimed to have spent the day fixing a truck, then spending the night with his girlfriend. She vouched for him, of course, but that rarely amounts to much. However, a Georgia auto parts store produced a receipt that proved he was nowhere near Durham at the time of the murders. After an interview with Junior, the SBI returned to North Carolina convinced Pierce was not their guy. And Lonnie Byron Ashley? Sure, he was AWOL, but he was hardly the man responsible for the deaths of Pat and Jesse. To prove it, he produced a fantastic alibi. Full name is Lonnie Byron Ashley Jr., white male, 21, and that he had been AWOL about 32 days since about January 14, 1971. Stated he had been staying with Murdess Hammond, white female, at 910 Camden Avenue, and said he wanted to marry her. Byron said on Friday, February 12th, early a.m., he had come to Durham driving his 1961 old and went to 1819 Northgate Street, residence of Lynn Fisher, white female, and had a friend along whose name was Danny. Stated they talked for a while, then about 2 a.m., he and Danny went to Dunkin' Donuts for coffee. There, they met two subjects they knew called John and Ragamuffin, who were traveling in a light Mustang. With these subjects, they went to Ambet's Club, stayed for a while, and went to Dobbs' house, talked to Officer Ira Whitfield while there. Left house, went to Hector's in Chapel Hill about 6 a.m. and went to the poker house. This place was known by Deputy McCullough. Poker game going on between J.W. Moore, Edward Crabtree, and Byron's uncle Dynamite. Game broke up and he carried his uncle home in West Hills. Went back to the poker house, had two egg sandwiches, left there after a while, went to Ray's drive-in, and had breakfast and took a pill to stay awake. Stated the pill is called Black Beauty. From there he went to Dick Bateman's pool room on Main Street. About 9 a.m., had a beer, shot a couple of games, stated he took two more pills and started drinking and got Said drunk. he took Danny to the poker house, dropped him off, borrowed a dollar, then came to Durham at 9:10 Camden Avenue. Said he got there about 11 a.m. and his girl got mad, started Byron threatened to go back to Fort Bragg, then he burned the clothes Murdess had given. Said he left, went back to Hillsborough to the pool hall, picked up Maynard subject started back to Durham. Maynard subject was driving. Byron fell asleep. Carried Maynard home about 5 p.m., then returned to Camden Avenue. Lynn Bridges there stated he apologized for getting mad, then went till about 8 p.m. Woke up and didn't eat, bathed, shaved, left Camden, started feeling pretty good, went to top service station on Roxborough. Saw Mr. Sharon, who works there, and borrowed a dollar for gas, left and went over to 1819 Northgate residence of Lynn Fisher. She wasn't there, so we went to the Blue Light. Talked to Wesley Taylor, also looking for Randall Honeycutt, white male to straighten out some trouble they left had. Left Blue Light, went to the Rebel Room, front door was locked, went to the side door, next to the bar, and talked to subject Otto, who was bartender. Through the open door, left and went by the drop in but was closed. Remember seeing a blue light falcon left there by the wagon wheel, talked to skinny subject who's the manager who was wearing western clothes. Left went to the Ambits Club, went in, said this was about 12 to 1 a.m. Talked to manager Jim Smith, also saw Skippy Landis and his wife. Stayed at the Ambits a couple hours, then he and Skippy and a friend of Skippy's went to Aubrey Gosses. Had one drink, left Aubrey's about 4 a.m., took a pill while he was there, went to Poker House in Hillsboro, left Skippy's home about 5 a.m. Went by top service station to 1819 Northgate, then back to Tops, bought $1.25 in gas, then went to Hillsboro to ex-wife whose name is Dawn. Stayed until about 7.30 a.m. Stated he had nothing to hide and wanted to cooperate. Agreed to take the polygraph test. Ashley would pass that polygraph. And we haven't forgotten Patricia Mann's pen pal. Gerald Brignac traded letters with Pat since she was a student at Sanford High and he served as tours in Vietnam. While their correspondence lacked romantic overtures, she had recently aborted a trip he had planned to North Carolina over the Christmas holidays. Concerned that a spurned suitor may have motive to do away with her, SBI agent Fred Cahoon dispatched to Louisiana to interview the veteran. However, Brignac's sister had gotten married the weekend Pat and Jesse went missing. The wedding, well attended and heavily photographed, provided a rock-solid alibi. The pen pal was not their guy. No one will ever explain to anyone's satisfaction why it took five years for the Brandon meeting to take place. But one of the results is that Clarence Gooch is assigned the duty of moving a box of evidence from an SBI holding facility to the Hillsborough Jail. This is where it would stay for 34 years until Tim Horn would find it. Also, a small task force is assigned. Three agents, Gooch included, would work together to chase down the new leads gathered in that meeting. As the minutes draw to a close, these agents, with the help of Brannon and a revitalized energy towards solving it, 
strategize on working together to bring to justice the killer or killers of Patricia Mann and Jesse McBain. However, for whatever reasons, it was not to be. These newfound investigations are strangely absent from the case file. If any new evidence, clues, or leads were discovered by Brannon's task force, there is no record of it. Clarence Gooch, the only surviving member of this task force, has no recollection of it. Neither does Judge Anthony Brannon. What he does remember is why no one was ever brought to trial. It's one of those cases, widely publicized, in which you always felt, from a law enforcement point of view, that one more snippet of evidence, one lucky break, would have solved the case. And that just never happened. And it's never happened to this good day, and probably won't. It's a cold case now. The people involved in it are dying off, suffering strokes, and so it's become very cold. Obviously, the families of the two deceased will never forget it. And I'm sure they, they wonder why nobody was ever arrested. I wondered about it times, too. One lucky break. One more snippet of evidence. Returning to the 21st century, we can see how frustrating that must feel for agents Cahoon and Gooch as well as Judge Anthony Brannon, to be so close, yet so far, due to something as simple as miscommunication, human error, vanity. As investigative journalists, we've tried our hardest to paint a fair and accurate record of the tensions, but far too many of the players are no longer living and can't defend their actions. No matter where you look in the investigative record, fingers point every which way, all except for the fingers on the hand of Captain Tim Horn in Orange County. Those, he points squarely at himself, for he is the sole investigator now. The shackles of territorial jurisdiction have been cast off, and instead, he carries with him everywhere the weight of those unsolved murders, and he finds no solace in the supposed missteps of his 20th century counterparts. Instead, he finds teachable moments. It was a big case, but they didn't always share the information the way they should have. And so that certainly hindered the case. Things are a little more open now. Now everybody's got a computer. You're emailing, you're phoning, you're texting. There's more of a, a sense of let's just get it solved, just get it done. Back then, you know, they didn't have that. Handwritten notes, uh, they weren't as easy to share. I don't know what the relationships necessarily were like, agency to agency. And certainly it, it, it was some hurdles. It was some hurdles. So learning from past mistakes, he calls together again the original investigators. In 2011, for the first time since that Saturday afternoon 35 years previous, the surviving detectives return to the triangle. This time, they are there to listen. Tim Horn and Don Hunter have assembled everything, all of it. Four decades of police work built on the backs of six different agencies, and they present it to them. You could have heard a pin drop. We went there for about an hour, maybe a little more than an hour. You could literally hear a pin drop. No one moved their chair. No one dropped an ink pen. Everybody sat perfectly still and listened. That's how important the case was to everybody. And many people said that's the first time they'd ever heard this or that. I don't think there was anything that was said in the room that wasn't heard or known by somebody 
in the room. But the whole story in the case as we laid it out was the first time that most of those individuals had heard the complete case file in a presentation. There was one person, and I was talking about the living suspect. We didn't focus on, we let the, we just put the evidence out there. This is what we know. We're asking for your help. Give us your opinion. And one of them said, quote, holy shit. If we had known that then, I'd have put him in jail, end quote. So a lot of them even then had pieces of the puzzle, but they weren't always connected agency to agency, officer to officer. And we put them back together the best we could for this presentation. That's kind of where we're at. We feel like we've made a lot of progress, but, you know, this is still a cold case. I have cases that need to be worked from yesterday. You want to give every case its due diligence, so you work on them as much as possible. You get help with other agencies. But what we found is, found out, this case is kind of a cold case in the mothball stage from every other agency but ours. We're the only ones, to my knowledge, with an active, open investigation. We're sharing our information. We are trying to get the word out. We're trying to get anybody that wants to assist and help and take a look at this, you know, with different expertise. The investigation continues, even today. Over 46 years, new detectives would join the hunt. Old investigators would retire or simply pass away. Names of suspects would come to light. Many of them would be ruled out to a strong degree of satisfaction. Many of them, but not all. To date, there are three suspects who made the list that have never been ruled out. Three very strong suspects. Their names have never been disclosed to the public, but still haunt the investigators who first uncovered them, as well as those who subsequently pursued them. Two of them are deceased. One of them still very much alive. Join us next time as we, for the first time anywhere, begin to name these suspects, then present the case against them. As we uncover a new set of stories, new characters to this strange saga of a forgotten tragedy, then unwittingly take a more active role in this investigation. Join us as we continue the 46-year odyssey into the deaths of Pat and Jesse, and hopefully the beginning of the end in the next installment of The Long Dance. The Long Dance is produced by Eric Pruitt, Drew Adamack, and me, Piper Kessler. This was episode three. Please subscribe. Find us on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you find your favorite podcasts. If you like this story, please tell your friends. Share it on social media. Help us spread the word about the stories of the lives touched by the murders of Patricia Mann and Jesse McBain. Episodes are written by Eric Pruitt. Field produced by Drew Adamek. My name is Piper Kessler, and I'm the sound engineer. Mike Rollin composed the music score, and additional voices in this episode were presented by Michael Howard. Our website is thelongdancepodcast.com, and it includes additional media relevant to the story. Please be sure to check it out. 
And most of all, thank you for listening. <laughs>